Then this is the one that is never told. Now, I'm pretty sure you've probably not heard this one before. Um, you see, hopefully, you do already know the truth about Christmas. If you don't, again, there's material available, and I encourage you to do a little bit of uh, diligent research. But as I said, you probably don't know the other Christmas story. At least you know it, but you've probably never seen it in this context before. Now, the funny thing is, it's been sung about probably by now for weeks and weeks and weeks in the lead up to Christmas and churches all around the country even today and over the next few weeks will be singing about this other Christmas story. You'll find that even supermarkets and shopping malls and so on have been declaring it. It's incredible. And yet 90% of churches in this country deny it. Now actually that figure may be a bit higher than that, but it's probably not likely to be much lower than that. You'll find that Bible colleges will not teach it. And world governments actively seek to undermine it. So what are we talking about? First of all, the question you have to ask is, is it biblical? Well, yes, of course, it is biblical. And you'll find the Bible actually gives eight times more print to the other Christmas story than it does to the traditional Christmas story. Intrigued, I think. <laughs> okay, so let's have a look first of all at the Christmas story, the narrative from Scripture, some of the verses we, we, we even hear every year, and uh, ones we should be very familiar with. Let's start in the, uh, the Gospel of Luke. In uh, Luke chapter 1, and we just read verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God and the city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou art highly favoured, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his son David. And he shall reign in the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Again, the scriptures we're familiar with, and Another scripture we'll often hear this time of year is from uh, the book of Micah, the Old Testament prophets. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, and Martha, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been old and everlasting. If you stay up on Christmas Eve and watch the uh, televised services that are often on, this scripture will be read at some point during that service. <coughs> into uh, Luke, and we read uh, verse 46, and Mary said, My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Saviour, being regarded the lowest day of his handmaid. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty has done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He showed strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of no degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has fallen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercies. He spoke to our fathers Abraham and to his seed forever. <coughs> now 
read uh, Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 57, verse 16, verse 67. This is the, the account about John the Baptist we were aware of. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. Verse 16 tells us that his mother answered and said, he shall be called John. You know the account that led up to this, Zechariah had uh, been in the temple and seen the angel, and, and because he didn't believe, he was uh, struck down for this period of time. For all of a sudden, we find that, verse 67, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. His tongue is now loose and he can speak. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a more salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all the haters. To perform the mercy of our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He opened, he swore, to our father Abraham, who would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, thou shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt, shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation <coughs> unto his people by the remission of their sins. Now jumping across to Matthew's Gospel, there. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. We find uh, Herod's response. When he had gathered the chief priests and scribes and the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said, I'm in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. It's quote from Michael that we tell a moment ago. And now Bethlehem and the land of Judea are not the least among the princes of Israel, but after thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So those are the scriptures that we are familiar with. We see them every year read and so on. Let's do that again. Okay, now before we go and look at the scriptures again, and actually look at actually what they're saying, I need to go over and warn you the following content may be offensive. Alright, let me clarify what I mean by that. As I said, 90% of churches in this country will deny what we're about to look at, and yet you'll see it's what the Bible says. Bible colleges don't teach it, except there are four that I know in this country that will, to a degree, teach what we're about to look at. World governments, as I said, actively seek to undermine the verses we're about to look at, and it is certainly not politically correct. Start the same place and we come again. Sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, the man of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came and unto her and said, Hail thou art highly favoured, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. So far, came back. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not. Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth the Son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he should be great, and he should be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Notice pause a moment. Did Jesus ever sit on a Jewish throne? 
3, he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. How much do you think Gabriel got it wrong? So we're dealing with scripture here that clearly has yet to be fulfilled. The throne of David is a nationalistic Jewish throne. There's no other way you can cut it back to what it is. And therefore it demands, if Jesus is to sit on the throne of David, it demands that the re-establishment of that royal throne, obviously therefore a Jewish king, and for all these things to happen, we need a Jewish temple to be on the Temple Mount and so on. This is not politically correct stuff. Let's look at that verse from Michael 5, verse 2. Thou, Bethlehem, the Father, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Because going forth the being from old, from everlasting. Those uh, verses from Luke. Mary said, My soul is magnified the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Saviour. Just another point to mention, of course. If Mary was sinless, she wouldn't need a Saviour. But she meant to mention here that she needs a Saviour. For he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaid, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall come to blessed. For he that is mighty has done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that bear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm, and scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has cut away empty. He has, although not helped, his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary makes this declaration that as a result of that which was happening with her, the fact that she was going to carry the Messiah, she links this directly God's faithfulness, fulfilling his promises in helping Israel. And she says, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever, Mary understood that that which was happening was the fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies that God had given. Let's carry on. Read uh, the verses we read from Luke again, from uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 57 and 67. Now it is this all time that she should be delivered, uh, came she should be delivered, and she brought forth the son. Father Arthur said, he should be called John, you know. And his father Zacharias, know this, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, before we go and again look at what he said, this isn't Zacharias just spouting off some nationalistic things about to say. We're told in the word of God that Zacharias filled with the Holy Spirit said the things he's about to say. So what you're about to read again that Zechariah said was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as recorded in the Word of God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. This was Zechariah's understanding that what was going on with John the Baptist coming to prepare the way was all part of God delivering Israel and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. Notice what he says, for us. He's not thinking about the rest of the world, not thinking about the Gentiles. He's looking at the impact. 
that this one who was to be born in Bethlehem was to have on the nation of Israel. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hates us. Now, just think this through. The word of God, as we have recorded here, spoken by a man who is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes a declaration that the birth of the Messiah was going to lead to the deliverance of Israel and that they would be saved from all of their enemies and from all those that hate them. That has huge implications in the days we're living. Because we've already concluded those prophecies have not yet been fulfilled. Jesus has not yet sat on the throne of David. But if the word of God is true, and we've seen countless times that God is consistent in the fulfillment of the prophecies that we've seen to the detail, then we can expect these things to happen. And it means that Israel will be saved from the hand of all those who are against Israel. To perform his mercy, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Again, to our fathers. This is a prophecy, a promise of the healing. And to remember his holy covenant. So this is really important. God is a God who delights in keeping his covenants. He's made a covenant with Israel. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us, that we be delivered out of the hand of our enemies. Again, this is sworn to Abraham. These promises, uh, unconditional promises. That he would grant unto us, that we be delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him, all the days of our life. Thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, and thou shalt go before us the face of the Lord to proclaim his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Chapter that verse Matthew we read. <coughs> and when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold the came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born? King of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east, and I come to worship him. These characters, whoever they were, have made this long journey. They make the effort of going to the supposed leader of the land at that time, Herod, asking, Where is the person who has been born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and I come to worship him. So when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes and people together and demanded of them where Christ should be born, and they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet about Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, uh, not the least among the princes of Judah, out of these shall come a governor, again, who shall rule my people Israel. These are unmistakable promises that we have in God's word. Now, it seems to be promised and prophesied as we've just seen. Israel were awaiting their Messiah. We know that historically, it's very clear from scripture as well. At the time Jesus came, they were looking for deliverance from the Roman Empire and all those that were against them. And the prophecy stated that he would save and deliver Israel from their enemies. He would save them from their sins as well, we've seen And he would rule on the throne of David and be their king, ruling all nations from Jerusalem. And this is just mentioning, of course, this is what led to Jesus being crucified. The, the Pharisees were concerned that Jesus was going to make a play for the throne. 
But if he did that, he could bring the weight of Rome down on him. As Caiaphas makes this incredible declaration, it is better for one man to die on behalf of the whole nation than the whole nation basically to suffer. That was their mindset. <coughs> there was no question in the Jewish mind at this time, or the, the time um, 33 years on from this, that Jesus was setting himself up to be king. That was what they understood. That was what they were expecting. Of course, well, they hadn't quite understood and worked out, although plenty of prophecy said so, was that the Messiah's reign would be everlasting. And as we've seen in the words from Zechariah, and of course in the word of God anyway, but the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, clearly had to seal all of this. Let me just uh, ask you another question. Who's the king that we worship at Christmas time? Well, obviously, King Jesus. In scripture we find Jesus is referred to as King of the Saints on one occasion. That's in Revelation 15, verse 3. Jesus is referred to as King of Kings on three occasions. First Timothy 6, 15, Revelation 7, 14, and Revelation 19, 16. He's referred to as King of Israel six times. Isaiah, Zephaniah, Matthew, Mark, John, and John. He's referred to as King of the Jews 18 times. See, this is scripture is one slide, I'll give you a copy of all the references. He's referred to as the thy king, Israel's king, on four occasions. So you add all that up, you find that 28 times Jesus is referred to as the king of national Israel. And yet we all at Christmas celebrate the birth of this king. But we need to understand that this king is a Jewish king. Numerous carols capture verses from scripture which we looked at. The first Noel, born is the king of Israel. O come, O come, Emmanuel is another one that, that gets sung. <coughs> Ransom captive Israel. You know, I, I just find it amusing. Uh, a year or two ago, I was uh, in St. Prison Deal, and the first Noel was playing. Born is the king of Israel. I just couldn't help but smile. Because had they any concept of what they were broadcasting to everybody in their shop, they would be horrified. <laughs> and again, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you hear it played through tannoys and train stations and anywhere you go this time of year. That this, while this poor Christmas was coming to ransom captive Israel, to save them for all those who were against them. And that's the active plan. I mean, can you imagine? The newspapers just conned on to these things. I'll just give you a, a brief history again of uh, Israel. <coughs> God calls uh, Abraham around about uh, 2000 BC, or thereabouts, from our understanding. That's all recorded in Gen uh, Genesis 12. And we find there's various promises that are given to Abraham. Um, the promise that he would be blessed nation, that all nations would be blessed because of him, Genesis 12. But in Genesis 15, we have confirmed this land covenant with Israel. It's a covenant that is unconditional. You need the two parties to make a covenant. In Genesis 15, you find that Abraham's actually asleep when God makes this agreement. Abraham can't comment on it. God makes this agreement that he will give the land that he owns, that God owns, to Israel. It will be theirs. In Exodus chapter 12, where do we see 
what's often referred to as the birth of the nation. They go into the land of Egypt as uh, 75. Um, Dr. Luke in the book of Acts is absolutely right. You find in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes it's referred to as 70. And, uh, so on both are right. Depends which group you count, how many you count. Um, they did rely on Septuagint to make those figures up, but Luke didn't. Uh, Luke simply includes the wives of the son of Jacob as well. And the maths, no problem. 75 people go in to Egypt, but they come out as a nation of around about 2 million. Uh, all of a sudden, they're ready to take on the, the task that Lord has for them. By that process, next to 25, they're given the law. The law, of course, is really important because the law was effectively a, a conditional covenant, and in Deuteronomy 28, Really, Moses ratifies there that the people covenant sometimes it's referred to. This is the covenant that God makes with the people. And it's a, a, if you will do this then, but if you don't do this then. And there's conditions to it. And you find that God makes it very clear that if Israel were to obey, there would be blessing. If they were to disobey, well, they would be judged accordingly. And Deuteronomy 28 is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. If you've never read Deuteronomy 28, go read it. We then get to the time of the, the kingdom, around about uh, 1100 or so BC. We find that Saul was the first king. He's put on the throne because the people were the king. It wasn't God's choice at that point. God allows them to have their way. Uh, but then we get to David. David is the king that God had already intended to sit on the throne. And the kingdom was going to start there and end with the Messiah who reigned with us forever. Quite the fact, actually, yeah. Sometimes we talk about the millennium. We talk about the millennium. We ask the question, how long will Jesus reign for? People say a thousand years. No, he's going to reign forever. This is a thousand years to start with. But it's an eternal <coughs> kingdom. And yet, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, another portion of scripture you might be familiar with, the number of times through that chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that you find the words forever. God really labors the point that that kingdom that he was on the throne of David was to be established forever. It was to have no end. We then find the Babylonian captivity. Interestingly <coughs> enough, I would again encourage you to uh, avail yourself of uh, that teaching I referred to earlier about uh, the DC website. But you find at the time of Babylonian captivity, Israel's last true king, of on whom there is a blood curse, by the way, as well, is taken captive to Babylon. But the, the crown, the authority of Israel, is taken to Babylon. You'll find that some 600 years later, Magi, part of the kingmaker set of the, the, the Medes and Persians, the Persians particularly, bring the throne back. <coughs> really interesting study to, to get into there. But anyway, we have the kingdom that we know about, the kingdom of Israel, and that goes on up until the time of the captivity, but at that point, we get to this break. What happens there? Well, it's exactly what we find Isaiah prophesied. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, without an image, without a people, without a therapy. They're told there's going to be a time that you're not going to have a king. They're going to go through this, this stage awaiting your next king. Then find after the captivity in Babylon, the exiles return, around about 50,000 or so, return. Uh, this is with Ezra and Nehemiah or so. And mainly those of Judah and Benjamin are those that come back and some Levites and others as well. But, uh, that's around about 537 BC when Cyrus signs the decree allowing them to return home. 
bring us up to the time of Christ when in 2 BC, I believe, the Messiah was born. This the Messiah Nagi, the, the one who was appointed the king, the one Daniel the prophesied the coming of and many others in the Old Testament. Jesus obviously was crucified, uh, and then in 580 the temple is destroyed, and it starts this dispersion of Jews around the world, just as it's been prophesied. In AD 32, we get the final destruction of Israel. Uh, this time, Emperor Hadrian, uh, well known to us, building the wall up north. Um, at this point, back in, uh, in Rome at the time, and he was determined to put down uh, this uh, Jewish uprising that was still bubbling over in uh, that land. And so he gets rid of all the Jews out of the land and renames the land uh, Palestina. Okay. Now, just to make you aware of it, if you rename something, it doesn't automatically come with a heritage and history. And you'll find people refer today to the Palestinian refugees, the Palestinian prophet, the land of Palestine. There has never been a land of Palestine. It was the land of Canaan, it became the land of Israel. It was Israel's inheritance. Israel lived there, they dwelt there. There were no Palestinians. And in fact, the whole Palestinian refugee problem was causes the direct result of the, the Arabs not allowing those who they told to get out of the land, the Arabs were told the Jews to get out of the uh, inhabitants to get out of the land lived there at that time, and then, because of Israel saying, you can come back, it's all right, after 1948, but the, the Arabs wouldn't let them up, and so they end up creating this problem. And interestingly enough, there was about, at that time, around about 500,000 what was now referred to Palestinian refugees. What's often not talked about is that Israel absorbed about 900,000 refugees from other nations, where Jews that had been kicked out from Libya, from Egypt, and elsewhere. But Israel, that small little land, accommodated all of their people, and they even invited these so-called Palestinians back. But big uh, topic and subject to get into. But anyway, we then get to Israel being reborn, 1948. It was a nation. Can a nation be born in a day? As I asked the question, yes, they were. Incredibly. Against all the, the odds, anything that was uh, seen at the time or expected, uh, incredibly, the governments of this world granted Israel's freedom to permission to be born, and they give us again the, the national title of Israel. Um, very interesting prophecies, uh, prophecies in Ezekiel uh, 37 and elsewhere. But then 1967 is when Israel finally recaptured Jerusalem and so on. All this time, Israel has been a kingdom without a king, just as Hosea promised. Of course, we're up to 2012. What's going to happen as we go into this again? There's going to be interesting things on the horizon for us to watch and read. Now, the problem is, uh, as I said earlier, the promises and the promises we've been looking at are not going to fulfill So where does it leave us? Well, there's options. God's broken his promise. Jesus was not the Messiah. God's finished with Israel. The church now receives all the blessings attributed to Israel. All the promises are yet to be fulfilled. Well, God has broken his promise, I think so. God ever broke the promise, and we're all in trouble. <coughs> the suggestion that Jesus was not the Messiah is ludicrous. Just a little bit of uh, digging research. The chance that, that any individual could fulfill all the prophecies that Jesus did is just beyond any realm of rational thought. So those dismiss. This is a very popular one, though, see, that, that God has finished Israel. The church now received the blessings. Uh, we'll look at a minute and show how foolish that notion really is. So we're left in a situation of promises are yet to be fulfilled. 
exactly what the Bible tells us. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25 to 27, Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. But blindness in part is happened to Israel. What, what, what does people mean by that? Blindness in part. Well, we're familiar with the church, effectively to start with, was Jewish. Some of the Jews believed. Paul, at the beginning of uh, this uh, discussion of Romans chapter 9, talks about Israel, 9, 10, and 11, this whole chapter, uh, the whole section of scripture referred to this, that there was a remnant who believed. Because Paul asked the question, you know, does God cast Israel off? He said, of course not, because some of Israel are part of the church. They haven't been cast off. But then he asked the question, well, what about the rest? And here he tells again, they were blind. Now, this is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19. Because of their unbelief, because they rejected the Messiah, because they did not know the day of their visitation, God pronounced national blindness on them. This is what Paul referred to. Blindness in part. Part is the, the nation that, that didn't accept Jesus, they've been blinded. But notice that there is a really important word there, that until. Until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So when would that be? When would it be then that from the scripture, Israel would believe when they would see, well, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When will the fullness of the Gentiles be come in? If you do a study in the book of Revelation, you'll find that the start with God's judgments are always in partnership. Find a third of the truth. So on third of the rivers and so on. But then we get a little bit later and we find God's wrong before now. No limit to the, the destruction in the sense that God allows at that point. And it's just prior to that that if you, if you read and you study, um, you find that the last of those who are saved during the tribulation come out. They're the last group that are saved, and there are no more believers on earth for the last part of the tribulation. Of course, the church is taken up before the tribulation begins. I believe that very firmly in the scripture. But you need to understand that the tribulation is God's wrath being brought out of the world. If any part of that, the church left, then we are being judged twice. Once accountable. Once again, during that time, it doesn't make any sense. It makes a mockery of the cross. So, the first one believe that the, the church will be taken out prior to the tribulation. Obviously, there will be many that come to know the Lord during that tribulation time. But there will be a cutoff point, after which nobody will be saved. And it's at that point the last of Gentiles come in. Interestingly enough, you'll find it's the time that Israel fled out to the wilderness, out to Petra, out to Edom, fulfilling a promise. Remember when Jacob came back from being labor? He makes this uh, promise to Esau, his brother. Esau says, oh, come, come and join me, come and be where I am. And Jacob says, no, 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 well, you go on ahead. And they have this conversation. And Jacob says, we'll follow later. We'll come to where you are later. Jacob never goes. Did he break his promise? Well, no, not really, because it's a very subtle prophecy. Because Jacob will go to Edom, where his brother was. But it's yet to happen. And so it's at that time when Israel are in Edom, when they fled, that they will look upon Jesus. They will look upon the one whom they pierced. They will realize and they will weep and they will understand that Jesus was their Messiah. They will cry out for him. And it's at that part time that that blindness will be lifted. Just as this verse tells us, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, so the blindness will be lifted. And then verse 26 tells us, and so all Israel, both those that became part of the church and those that were blinded, all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Again, you will find numerous passages in the Old Testament that refer to 
this, what we've just been talking about. We'll just spend a, a moment or two just looking at some of these promises that we've been talking about uh, from the Old Testament. Let's uh, start in Jeremiah. <coughs> we'll read Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. As I mentioned a moment ago, many believe that these promises have now been transferred to the church. And the bulk of the church in this country, certainly in many throughout the world, believe that's the case. Israel has blown it. The church now inherits the promises. Funny enough, even um, Muslims have this view that Israel were once given the land. That was theirs. But because they blew it, then they don't have any access or any right to those, the fulfillment of those prophecies anymore. That's their understanding. Can the prophecies be transferred? Well, let me just ask you this. If I, if I bought one of you a present, and just as you're about to open it, well, actually, it's not for you, it's for someone else. How would you feel about that? Well, probably a little bit cheated, wouldn't you? You know, if I promise to do something for you and then don't do it, and say, well, actually, I didn't mean you, I meant them. You can't transfer a promise when it's made in this way. See, the promises were made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Okay, this is an issue of God's integrity. Does he keep his promises? Of course, we know he does. Let's look at some of the verses I mentioned earlier, uh, this incredible chapter, Deuteronomy 28, verse 58, we read, If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this Lord that are written in his book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, and uh, the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance, and of sore sickness, and, uh, and of long continuance. Notice, thy plagues. Who are they prophesied to? Israel. I, I find it incredible that when people talk about the blessings being divulged on, you know, the church receive these things, nobody says that the curses are as well. It's funny we kind of miss that one. But anyway, moreover, he will bring upon thee, talking to Israel, all the diseases of Egypt which thou was afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Also every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law, then will the Lord bring upon you until you be destroyed. And you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven for multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord thy God. And it shall come to pass uh, that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And you shall be plucked off from off the land whither thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among the nations, from one end of the earth even to the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease. Neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sorrow of mind. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shalt have none assurance of thy life. Again, the church never tries to claim these promises. In the morning, 
thou shalt say, would to God it were even. And even thou shalt say, would to God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart, wherewith thou shalt fear. And for the sight of thine eyes, which thou uh, shalt see. So, for failure to obey the law of Moses, Israel, we're told, will be driven out of the land. Israel will be scattered among all people from one end of the earth and to the other. And they're told that their lives would hang in doubt. They would be in great distress. Now, all that has happened to the letter. No question, there's no debate on that. That's exactly what history has told us took place, that Israel were driven from off their land. They have been scattered around the world into all people. Their lives would hang in doubt. We've seen this. They would be in great distress. No other nation has experienced the things that Israel has experienced. And incredibly, Israel remained an identifiable ethnic group. I mean, when was the last time you met a Hittite? They've just been lost in the sands of time, haven't they? Jebusites, the Amalekites, all those kind of nations that once existed, we have no idea where they are or what happened to them or how they just got diluted into other cultures and nations. But Israel have remained separate. We read in Deuteronomy 30, it shall come to pass when all these things come upon thee. Notice what we read there. It shall come to pass when all these things come to pass. Just as an aside, I find it incredible that when Jesus died on the cross for us to pay the price for our sin, he knew everything that we would do wrong, every sin we'd commit. Because at that time, we were not yet born. So all of our sins were yet future, and yet he still did what he did because of the love he had for us. I find it amazing. And the promises and prophecies we read to Israel, even at this point, Deuteronomy has been recorded by Moses for us. They're in the wilderness. They're promising to obey God. And God knew that they would walk away. And we read, It shall come to pass when all these things come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, that thou shalt call them to mind among the nations whether the Lord thy God has driven thee. How can that possibly refer to the church in any shape or form? And thou shalt return unto the Lord thy God and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul. That then, okay, so when those things happen, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity. So when they call to mind the promises, when they realize that they have offended their God, They've broken his covenant. God says he will turn their captivity and will have compassion upon them and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee. Incredible promises and prophecies. And you find Jesus himself referred to this in Matthew um, 24. He talks about the regathering of the nation. He sent his angels to gather his elect. So many people see that as being the church. You read the context, it's not the church. Jesus was quoting from Isaiah. <clears throat> and the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and will multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And it's again this promise that God promises to bring them into the land. And we've got this, this two-part thing here, that they're going to love him, or they're going to firstly be brought back into the land, and then we're going to find 
that the Lord is going to do this work in them and they're going to love him with all their heart and with all their soul. Now, that's been partially fulfilled because as of 1948, Israel are back in the land. Not all of them, but a lot of them. That was the first regathering. Isaiah um, talks about this, Isaiah chapter 11, um, about the, the two regatherings. The first one took place in 1948, and it's continuing today as Jews keep going back. But the second part of that has not yet been fulfilled. Israel are not yet serving God with all their heart and with all their soul. This is what Ezekiel tells us. Though Israel had been disobedient, and God has and would scatter them among all the nations, God, for his name's sake, and it's important that we understand that, will bring them back to the land of their fathers. And the land will burst forth into life. And God will put a new spirit in their hearts. They will be his people, and he will be their God. This was what Ezekiel prophesied and was hoping for. And we read some of Ezekiel's words. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings. I judged them. And when they entered unto the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, where they went. God's simply saying, you know, that they're going to be scattered as a result of this. They didn't trust the Lord, and God's name was brought into disrepute because of their attitudes and actions. Therefore... Say unto the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sakes. This was the reason that God was doing and will do what he's done. Which you have profaned among the heathen, whether you went, and I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. And then, for I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Okay, part one. That's the first part of the prophecy. For I will take you from among the heathen, gather you out of all countries, bring you into your own land. Then. That's going to happen first. Now, they're not all back yet. The rest of the Jews won't return to the land until the time of the second coming. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Where will I cleanse you? And then the second part of this prophecy, a new heart also will I give you, and a spirit will I put within you, and will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. So God making these, this promise that first he will bring Israel back to their land, and then when they're all back, he will do this incredible work in them. Again, this will be when they realize Jesus is the Messiah. They will effectively become born again because that is when that new heart is put within us. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. Again, this cannot apply to the church. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the corn. It will increase and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field, that you shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then you shall remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good. 
and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes I do this, says the Lord, be it known unto you. Be, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Notice again what we have there, that they are to come back into their land. The land will become fruitful. And as a result of all these things, eventually they will realize God's blessing has been upon them. And again, when you go to Israel today, what do you find? A land that is just overflowing with fruit and with all sorts of uh, produce. The land is fruitful. Thus says the Lord God, In the day that I should have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I also will cause you to dwell in the cities and in the waste, I'm sorry, in the waste you'll be builded. I mean, when I went to Israel some years ago now, I was amazed how many buildings were going up everywhere. I mean, you think you go to places like London, you see cranes, but I mean, not, nothing like you see in Israel. Everywhere there's building projects. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, this land was desolate. It's become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities have become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. These aren't promises that God would just get rid of. And I know I'm kind of reading a lot of scripture here, but I want to underline the point that God is very, very serious about this. <clears throat> now, in addition to those things we've just looked at, Ezekiel tells us that Israel and Judah would once again be joined together, brought back to the land of Israel. And once again, a king, this is getting back onto our theme, will rule over the whole house of Israel. Now, remember that Solomon was the last king to rule over all Israel. Because from that time, around about 1000 BC, we find that the kingdom is divided. Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, takes part of the kingdom, and then Jeroboam comes and takes the, the northern part of the kingdom, and we have a divided kingdom. Ezekiel is prophesying this around about 587. That was roughly the time uh, that he was taken away captive to Babylon himself. And he's making this prophecy that the nation would be joined together again. So this is way after it had been divided, and clearly yet has not happened. So we read, And I say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, uh, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they uh, be gone, and gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And there shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Now, again, I know I'm kind of laboring this, but anybody that tells you that the church is the new Israel, just ask them to read the Bible because it makes it completely clear. These are not promises that were in any way divulged by the church. The church cannot benefit from the promises to Israel. They're to do with the land, the covenants that God had made with them. And this one king is going to be the king over this united kingdom. Neither shall they defile any more, uh, sorry, defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of their, all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they, shall, uh, they all shall have one shepherd, and shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, Notice, given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children. For how long? Until the UN decide that we're going to change the rules? No, no, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince for how long? 
forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Okay. So because these prophecies are so specific, there is no way they can be ascribed to the church. They're regarding the land of Israel, the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, and the Davidic dynasty. This is all about the promises that God had made to them, which we're told quite clearly will last forever. And God, we're told, will do it for his name and as a sign to the nations. I mentioned Isaiah 11 earlier, but reads in verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it the Gentiles uh, shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Now, this is talking about a global dispersion of the Jews. Now, some try and make the, the first gathering being when they return from Babylon. But as we already mentioned, there's only about 50,000 returned. It wasn't a global gathering from all the nations where they'd been scattered. It was a purely localized gathering of those that went back from Babylon. This, in Isaiah, is referring to a worldwide gathering of Jews back to the land of Israel. And we've seen the first gathering. This talks about the second time. And obviously it's when Jesus will return. And, we, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, Israel together and the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Note that scripture as well, the four corners of the earth. It's Israel and Judah that are being gathered as well. And it shall, this is Isaiah 27, jumping forward a bit, verse 12. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and you shall be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. Make a note of these things that we're told here. Okay, this again refers to Israel. A trumpet's going to be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Now this is what Jesus refers to, as I mentioned, in Matthew 24. At the time of the second coming, we read, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man, we just read that referred to, in heaven, and uh, then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. That's not talking about the Gentiles, it's talking of the Jews. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, Jesus was quoting Isaiah, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus is talking about the regathering of Israel. Matthew 24, verse 32, we read, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise you, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. People have a lot of uh, fun on this one. They try and understand what this means. That this generation shall not pass. Well, a generation is going to be 40 years. So we can, work out, uh, we can work out when Israel went back to the land. So 40 years, oh no, that doesn't work. Okay, we need to have a longer generation. So we make it 70 years. And then, uh, okay. Um, and people try and do those kind of date-setting exercises. I don't believe that's what they're saying at all. The word 
in Greek here is uh, genia, um, but it can equally be translated age, generation, nation, or time. It's referring to this type of thing. Now, in that context, I believe what Jesus is saying very clearly here is that verily I say unto you, this nation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. The nation of Israel will not pass. And when you understand that one of the prerequisites of the second coming is that Israel cry out for their Messiah, if Israel can be destroyed, as the Arab nations want to do, and Islam particularly would love to do, destroy Israel, if that can happen, well then effectively it breaks the, the opportunity of Jesus being able to fulfill that prophecy. Quite a serious issue. Just a few more scriptures and then we'll wrap up. Something that preachers and pastors say halfway through. Um, <laughs> don't worry. Jeremiah 16, verse 14. Uh, Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that it shall be no more said, the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of north and from all the lands where he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their own land. And I will give, the, uh, sorry, that I will give, sorry, that I gave unto their fathers. Just understand this. It's talking about that we're not going to talk about the deliverance from Egypt. I mean, it's got to be one of the most incredible things in Israel's history. And that which is coming is going to be so great that it's going to just make the deliverance of Egypt, the Red Sea, all of those things, not even a, a topic of conversation. Behold, I will send for many fishes, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain, from every hill, and out of the holes of the rocks. For mine eyes are upon all their ways, and they are not hid from my face. Neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes." And first, I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double. I just want to mention that uh, there. God isn't saying he's going to multiply their punishment by two. When you look in a mirror, you see a double of yourself. You see an exact likeness. And that's what God's saying to Israel. He's going to recompense their iniquity and their sin double. He's going to give them an exact likeness. For that which they've done, they will be punished. Because they have defiled my land, they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. Okay, <laughs> so the regathering of Israel back to the land for the second time will occur at the time of the second coming. And God likens it to the deliverance from Egypt in magnitude, but says it will surpass it so that the former won't even be remembered. Zechariah tells us in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in the day I'll make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And we've seen these things happen. Israel has become a cup of trembling. We see that it's been uh, the, the people round about it that are most afraid of what's going on, the, the nations that are ganging up against Israel. Very recently, you may have heard... Um, uh, one of the um, uh, Egyptian authorities had made this declaration. They just wanted to see Israel wiped out. You know, the, the, the media try and avoid public, uh, talking about these things, but it's very clear this is what's being said. This is what the, um, the, the Muslim nations want to do. And uh, Jerusalem has become a burdensome stone for all people. All the governments of the world have this problem of what to do with Israel. I think you'll find that a third of all UN resolutions have to do with this tiny country that are one one-thousandth of the world's population. It doesn't make any sense from a natural point of view. When you understand it from a spiritual perspective, of course it makes sense. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek 
to destroy all the nations that are come against Jerusalem. And I'll pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So, at this time, God is then going to set a king over the whole earth. He's going to, this king will execute judgment and justice. And that has been the hope of Israel. In Acts 15, this council of the early church meets together. And we read, after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit uh, the Gentiles to take out of them a people of his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof and will set it up. This has been God's plan all along. Look what Jesus promised the disciples, Matthew 19, 28. He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So clearly we don't have ten that are lost, and we don't have any element here that, well, no, God's finished with Israel, because clearly they still have a part to play. On the road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus in conversation with these two disciples, we read, or they say, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, uh, this t- today is the third day since these things were done. What was their problem? They were expecting Jesus to redeem Israel. But for them, he's just been crucified. So now they're all very confused. What was their hope? It was national deliverance. And that the Messiah would establish his throne. Look at John's question, Matthew 11 Verses 2 and 3, John the Baptist, when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? I think John was saying, kind of, this isn't what I was expecting, Jesus. I was expecting this big political movement. Jesus effectively goes back and says, you know, tell him what you've seen. So the Jewish expectation of the Messiah was that he would liberate and restore Israel according to all the prophecies. No, no wonder they expected this and that he would then rule as their king. John's disciple, the pair on the Emmaus Road, were confused because whilst they believed Jesus was the Messiah, he was not fulfilling their expectations. Remember Matthew in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he do? Uh, sorry, not Matthew, Peter. He takes out his sword. He's ready to to try and claim the kingdom there and then. He thinks this is it. See, the problem for Israel is that they have this kind of view possibly that there may be two messiahs because in Isaiah 53, we've got this suffering servant depicted for us. But in Psalm 2, we have somebody who's coming to rule with a rod of iron. Of course, we know that there's not two messiahs, but two comings. First, the first Christmas story He comes as the Lamb of God, born in a manger to take away the sins of the world. But then he will return as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come and sit on the throne of David as Gabriel promised to Mary. So first, the traditional Christmas story. And I hope you have a happy Christmas. And then the other Christmas story. And actually that should make us have an even happier Christmas. 
we should rejoice because God has kept and will keep his promises. Jesus really is the Messiah. God has not finished with Israel. And the church can never replace Israel. Never intended to. Jesus will return to establish the throne of David and rule on the earth. He'll be king of Israel and king of kings. The church and redeemed Israel will serve as one throughout eternity. So our conclusion, the church has not become the new Israel. And the phrase, by the way, the new Israel is never used in scripture. Whilst Israel has paid the price for breaking the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant to do with the land, and the Davidic covenant to do with the throne were unconditional. Christ has yet to sit on the throne of David and rule, but he will. Israel will never cease to be a nation before God. And so that is the other Christmas story. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the depth. We thank you that the questions we have are answered when we turn to your word. And Lord, as we celebrate this Christmas time, Lord, may we rejoice that 2,000 years or so ago, in a manger in Bethlehem, a baby was born. That baby who grew up to die on a cross to pay the price for our sin. To allow us to call you Father. To allow us to meet together in his name. But we thank you too that that wasn't the end of the story. And that the Magi knew full well that their visit wasn't a wasted exercise. That they were coming to pay homage to the one who is the king of the Jews. The one who, as Gabriel told Mary, will sit on the throne of David. The one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. And so this Christmas, we thank you, not only for the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but for the king of kings and the privilege that we have of walking with him and worshipping him. Father God, we thank you for these things. Lord, bless us. Keep us growing in knowledge and grace, we ask in the name of our King Yeshua. Amen.